Welcome to the No More Risk Better Accredit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to No More, Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm your host today, Zach Riffris, Head of Investment Grade and Macro Strategy here at Credit Sites. And I'm joined by Ross Schapp, who is the Head of Research at GeoQuant. Ross, thanks for taking the time today. Thanks for having me here. We have a great discussion ahead. We are going to address the upcoming U.S. presidential election and what Ross's models and his views are in terms of an expected outcome. So Ross, why don't we just start with the headline itself? What is your model predicting for the 2024 U.S. presidential election? Well, let me let me preface my remarks a little bit. Uh, so I'm the head of research at GeoQuant. And what we do is we generate country risk data for 146 countries around the world on a daily basis with the natural language processing machine learning model that produces a range of risk indicators across countries. And we use these risk indicators to create a whole variety of products and models. And one of our models is an election model. And we have a very simple, straightforward election model by country. And so for the United States right now, at the presidential level, our election model probably conforms with the consensus to some extent as we see in polls and whatnot, because it's pretty close to toss up. But the trend in the variables in our system, in our forecast variables in our system, actually is moving towards continuity, which is ideological continuity in our modeling system. Our modeling system models the incumbent relative to change, right? Rather relative to alternation. And so our model is at toss-up essentially now, maybe a little bit leaning toward change, but is trending fairly substantially towards continuity, suggesting that the incumbent, in this case, President Joe Biden, will win re-election come November. Obviously, this is quite a ways out from the election still. And so there are a variety of shocks one can imagine that might disrupt the trend in our data as it stands. But, you know, there's a fair amount of incumbent uh, sort of regression toward the incumbent. Incumbents have a great deal of advantages in elections. Joe Biden already won this race in a race in which we already sort of see who the two candidates are, if they're still with us when we get to the point of the actual election. And so we are going to see those two candidates ranging against each other again. We've experienced this before in our model, although it probably is suggesting a bit of a closer race given the relative positions of the candidates right now, it is trending towards that continuity over the next nine months. And so thinking about what, and we don't want to get too in the weeds here, but thinking about what we see from a headline perspective and the inputs into your model on a day-to-day basis, are there any key factors that are weighted more heavily than others? How do you, how does the model incorporate daily headlines and, and rhetoric and polls to come up with this current toss-up trending toward policy continuity outcome? 
Well, there are a range of indicators in our system that I told you we have a suite of risk indicators. There are a range of indicators that get at issues of government risk as a function of mass support, of elite support and institutional support, and social polarization that really unpacks issues related to ethno-religious divides and whether those generate conflict, migration population issues, whether those generate conflict, and socioeconomic views. And actually sort of gender and LGBT type issues is a fourth category there that we cover as well for, for sort of dimensions of social polarization along which politics, political conflict takes place. And so right now, uh, as I listed all those for you, mass support and uh, migration population, unsurprisingly, are two factors that are why Joe Biden looks weaker in the moment, why our model suggests toss up or possibly even change, meaning he would not be reelected if the election were to take place immediately. So mass support and migration population are probably two of the stronger drivers against him in the moment. And one of the things I've been looking at and surprised about in terms of President Biden's approval rating is his public opinion about his performance with respect to the economy. We have, by many measures, a very strong economy, but the approval rating by the public in terms of his performance there is quite low. How are you thinking about where we are in terms of the economy and what needs to happen for that narrative to change? Do you get the sense it's all about inflation? And is there any reason to think that if we maintain the current strong economic growth with disinflation trends, that things will improve in in terms of President Joe Biden's re-election chances. Uh, in terms of the sort of strength of the incumbent in this race, one of the parallels that we've been looking at is going all the way back to 82 and thinking about the 82 to 84 cycle in which Reagan was able to move from a situation in 82 where his unfavorables were extraordinary. There was sort of a double-digit recession, double-digit uh, interest rates, and very high unemployment and a great deal of volatility in, in employment. But Inflation was sort of slayed fiercely. Uh, it was it was difficult, but um, uh, it took and it took several months, even close to a year, really, for the general public to feel that improvement. But the improvement was very large, right? Inflation was had been very high and sustained for quite some time. We didn't have quite that experience this time. We had a much lower level of inflation. It did last longer than probably the people who thought it was going to be transitory thought. It lasted less long. And and and, and I, I can talk about the inflation story later if you want to talk about the inflation story and the drivers of that. But it, I'm sticking to the political story here in the election. It lasted less long than one might have thought. I think, you know, if you were thinking that an, in, unemployment was going to be significant, need to be significantly higher to get inflation down. And so I'd expect some rise in Biden's sort of support levels associated with how well the economy has performed over the last year. But that's probably going to take a little while to take effect. And it'll probably be a fair bit weaker than it hit for Reagan in 1984, where the trends were so stark, you could feel that the inflation had slowed pretty dramatically. And you could feel that even though inflation had slowed, the economy itself was bouncing back fairly strongly and inflation was remaining subdued. So uh, that's actually part of our model. And that's part of why the model trends toward continuity, towards incumbent advantage over the next nine months before ahead of November and why we sort of are tilting towards Joe Biden at this moment. But I think that will take a little more time to sort of get traction. 
for Biden among voters. And also remember, voters are really not paying attention much to the election. We're all fairly interested and we're paying attention closely right now. Most voters won't even begin to start paying attention until you start to get the primary sweep across the country, you get conventions, and that's when sort of high information voters come in. And then low information voters probably don't even start noticing until the typical signpost is Labor Day. So the beginning of September. And so uh, the other factors that are at play here are that most of the country probably isn't paying attention to the election continuously. All right. You make about three important points I want to unpack a little bit here. I think it's interesting to think about the lagged effect of the improvement in the economy that we saw back during the Reagan years. And even to me, that kind of sets off a bell in my head thinking about the middle of 2022. We actually did have two consecutive quarters of of negative GDP growth. Inflation was much higher. And so things have improved a lot, both on the inflation front And in terms of GDP in both Q3 and Q4, 2023, very robust measures. And so perhaps some of that improvement in strong economic activity is is being realized, or at least that shift in trend is realized later this year, which would time up nicely for President Joe Biden in terms of his reelection chances. You also make the point about low information and high information voters. Could you maybe just take us real quickly through how you think about that and what it means for a low information voter to only start paying attention to the election in that final month or two leading into it? If you're connecting the dots here between the economy and the population's sort of uh, their own assessment of the economy. And uh, so I'm going to take, I'm going to step into your question in a sort of two-step dance here, right? The population is feeling much better. And we can actually see that fairly clearly in how, uh, how surveys, what surveys tell us about how Americans feel about their own personal well-being. And when they talk about their own personal well-being, they're fairly optim- they're both optimistic about the future and they're fairly happy with where they are now on average. Uh, when they make assessments about the national economy, they make more negative assessments. And so there is a divide there between how people feel like if things are going well for themselves, they're probably attributing that to themselves. And so part of this is, right, it's normal, it's human. They're attributing this to themselves and that isn't going to accrue to the incumbent in this particular situation as strongly as it might, right? If they were thinking about the fact that the generally good economy is actually at least in part contributing to one's own personal success. And so that that will play out slowly over time. The second part here is for low information and high information voters, people really just aren't paying attention, aren't connecting the dots between what politicians are doing, what policies have been passed, how those policies have influenced the trajectory of the economy. High information voters will probably start to sort of pick that up if they haven't already picked that up as the election sort of becomes real for them, as they vote in primaries, as they watch the conventions, et cetera. Low information voters aren't going to be paying attention to that and probably are far less likely to vote in primaries, even if they're regular voters in national elections, right? They might be partisan in some way and have a not really care about the selection of the candidate at that level. And you can see that by obviously very different turnout rates in midterm elections, for example, right? When the president isn't at, presidency isn't at stake. Thinking about these low information voters not participating in the primaries, is there a way for your model to account for that? Or do you try to account for that in terms of the narrative? How how is that factored into your 
process? It would be it would be very roughly accounted for in a couple of places in our model, right? In mass support to begin with, right? So mass support won't pick up any sort of popular shift toward the incumbent as a function of the economy performing well. Um, and it's not going to pick that up because people aren't paying attention to that. And so they're not responding to surveys on that basis, right? People are responding. If you think about how people are responding to surveys, they're, they're responding with their own experience and their own take. Most people don't always trust their own experience. They're thinking back to what they've heard from others, what they've seen in the news, if they watch some, etc. And that may be lagging significantly. So people aren't, they, they don't have their pulse in the economy like you probably do. They probably are, you know, only picking up information as it happens to hit them. And so there's going to be a great deal of variability in, in how much of a lag each voter has. And I think as you get, as informations become lower and lower information voters, you eventually get to that, that lag becomes very long, but also very, very variable, very volatile too, right? You can imagine low information voters in particular circumstances where they've been laid off, uh, et cetera, updating <laughs> their take of the world more quickly than somebody who hasn't experienced that, right? And so there's a fair amount of, I think, volatility in that kind of outcome. Long and variable lags, just like monetary <laughs> policy. There we go. Yeah, exactly. Which is what we're all talking about now. That's right. Okay. So I got into the weeds there a little bit more maybe than I intended. So right now, the election right around a toss up in terms of your model, a little bit of a trend toward the incumbent. But as we all know, it's extremely important in terms of potential policy changes to understand what happens in terms of control of Congress. So what is your model predicting right now for the outcome for the House and the Senate? So uh, I talked about our presidential model tilting toward uh, the incumbent. Our, by contrast, our legislative model, which focuses on the lower house in, in each place, our legislative model is fairly strongly given where we are right now on continuity, which means ideological continuity. So right now, our model is essentially suggesting that the House of Representatives is likely to remain Republican. And we don't have a model for the Senate. There's a, there'd be a great deal more complexity trying to deal with the fact that a third of the chamber is elected each time. But but if you extend or extrapolate from our baseline legislative model of the House of Representatives to the Senate, you can see that the set of Senate seats that are up for grabs right now that are open skew towards Democrats. Democrats are going to have to defend more seats in the Senate. And the, the seats that have to be defended uh, will typically be easier for Republicans than for Democrats right now. And so uh, the Senate is... I think, structurally set to tilt toward the Republican Party, especially if this is a close race. I think as a result, you know, although our model is, is focusing on Biden, one way to think about this is to sort of unpack the issue by whether you get Biden or Trump and whether you are ex going to expect out of that outcome a sweep, meaning unified government, unified Congress behind a president, or to continue divided government as we have right now. So right now, if you can imagine the last race was relatively close, and, and, and this is actually something I should say about the, the election model too. The election model really is predicting the popular vote. In most countries, we're predicting the popular vote. We're not predicting an electoral college, and our model doesn't uh, hasn't been updated or hasn't been augmented in some way to sort of capture the electoral college 
variability there. And so we know the last election was not close in popular vote terms, but was quite close in electoral college terms because of the closeness of the popular vote in the states that actually put Biden over the top to get enough uh, electoral votes to win the election. And so if we get another, you can't think about that electoral vote as the source of uh, what's telling you about the legislative outcomes here. So if Biden can win a popular vote substantially as he did last time, or even more substantially, there's a strong possibility that Biden can secure another sort of sweep, another Democratic Congress, right, both in the Senate and the House. But that would take a an election somewhat like last time. Biden has, you know, Biden has incumbent advantage right now, but he also, as we talked about just a moment ago, has, um, and, and he, has, he has incumbent advantage and a good economy, but as we talked about a moment ago, people aren't attributing that to him. And so that's a, that could erode his support in the fall. And if that erodes his support, even if he were to win the election, if he won the election by smaller margins, those smaller margins probably tell us something about a higher likelihood of divided government going forward. And remember, in 2000, Biden, um, in 2000, that was following the 98 midterm, right? In the 98 midterm, the House and Senate moved firmly into Democratic controls under under pre- then President Trump. Uh, and so in the 2000 race, Biden didn't have to win the chambers. He, uh, The Democrats merely had to preserve their the levels of support in those two chambers. And that's easier than taking them back. And right now they have to actually take the House back and the margin in the Senate is extraordinarily narrow, and the set of seats that they face, the Democrats face, are much harder for them to sort of retain than for the Republicans. And so the Senate still tilts in that way. So my, my general take here is that if Trump wins, Trump is actually reasonably likely to secure majorities in the House and the Senate, and we get a common government. If Biden wins, which is our call, not strongly, but is our call in November, then the we're more at a toss-up stage between getting divided government and unified government. And at this point, I suspect we might maintain divided government. And oddly, we could end up with divided government that reverses itself, meaning the Republicans could find themselves, oddly, in control of the Senate, but not in control of the House. And so I think that, you know, if we're looking for a sweep, Trump's more likely to sweep, but he's less likely to win the election. Biden's more likely to win, but he's more likely to have to face a divided Congress as a result of winning. This is extremely helpful because I feel like over the years in a strategy role, we get tons of client questions. What's going to happen with the presidential election? And at the end of the day, what really matters is if there's a swing in control of both the White House and and Congress. So that's interesting when thinking about from a market's perspective, if you want to frame up the risks to the market understanding that a Trump win has a higher probability of the red wave, if you will, versus a Biden victory. I think that kind of changes the the calculation as you potentially probability weight these potential policy changes. And Ross, I think we kind of hit on some of this as we were going through, but how do the projections that you're seeing directly from the model differ from your personal views at this stage, obviously recognizing there is still a lot of time to go before we hit the polls. I know you just mentioned your official call as of this time mm-hmm. is that President Biden does indeed maintain control or maintain the presidency. Uh, but take us through any other nuances in terms of how you're thinking about the upcoming elections relative to what the model is spitting out for you. 
My personal view is actually on the presidency is pretty much aligned with where our model is. When we when we look at the level of support for the incumbent, it makes sense to discount the incumbent's ability to Joe Biden's ability to win in November right now. And uh, that makes a lot of sense. But the trends and here we talked about this extensively, the trends on the economy and the fact that voters will come to recognize those trends over the next several months, because there's a lot of time before the election, suggests they could come back around. And so my take on the presidency is, my personal take on the presidency is we're likely to get something close to what our model suggests. My take on the legislative call because our legislative call is right now for the House of Representatives strongly pro-incumbent, meaning the Republican Party will retain. I think there are lots of issues, lots of sort of granular information there that we're probably missing in the model. And I suspect it's not as strong as as that, right? Meaning that the Republicans are in the driver's seat to retain the House regardless. Um, I think that uh, a variety of changes in, in places like Wisconsin, where the Democrats are likely to do much better because both Repump, uh, state and congressional right districts in, in, in Wisconsin are getting redrawn. And so there have been a variety of sort of redrawing of districts around the country that will tilt toward the, that have probably tilted the House toward the Democrats a little bit over the last couple of years. And so our model wouldn't be picking that up. Um, and so there's a slightly higher chance there that the Democrats can get over the hump and take back the House. But right now, that's not where our model is. And I'd have to say that um, divided government still looks uh, more likely than unified government under Biden. Well, I recall when we were discussing doing this podcast together a week or two ago, you had taken me through, obviously, at GeoQuant, you forecast the results of many different elections and other key geopolitical events. What is the model accuracy, at least for however much you, you want to divulge here in terms of how accurate the, the legislative model has been here in the U.S. and just kind of thinking about how your models have performed to just frame up for our listeners how accurate you've been over the years? Our presidential model is um, uh, about 83% accurate. And I don't really tell anybody to take one model, right? You look at polls, um, I encourage people to look at polls in addition to our model and other factor, uh, other ways of sort of forecasting or predicting the presidential election. Take a bunch of them, assess them, evaluate them, and think about you know which ones probably are getting better traction given the circumstances around the particular election that we're in right now, right? And so the election that we're in right now, I'm actually fairly optimistic that our model is possibly better than just looking at polls. Um, because we know that polling this far out from an election actually has almost zero uh, predictive capacity over the outcome of the election. We really do need to get through at least the primaries where the parties formally select their candidates and possibly past the conventions to really get to the point at which polling is going to be strongly indicative of which candidate is going to be, the, be preferred here. I mean, 83%, that's that's truly incredible. And it's tough. When I should have, have said the legislative one is less good. There's more variability there. And so that's down in the 70s, down in the sort of the lower 70s. Um, but unreasonable. And remember, you know, you should be 50% right regardless. So there's a baseline. <laughs> there's a baseline. You always have to you always have to think about what, what your baseline is, right? You're getting 83% right. Can you make one prediction and be right 70% of the time, right? How, how much above randomness can you get is that essentially is what i'm saying that's right i i will say you know in the markets it feels like if you can do anything above 50 percent, that's uh you're doing one heck of a job so that's kind of the the framework i have it at least in my head um, that makes perfect sense 
Well, Ross, this has been incredibly interesting for me. I think our listeners will appreciate this perspective as we think about what to keep an eye on going forward. You know, discount the polls for now. I think getting the perspective on your model in terms of the potential outcomes is extremely helpful. We'd love to have you back on over the next couple of months as as things change and perhaps even for a policy discussion. So I think we can wrap it up there. Ross, thank you so much for coming on the No More Risk Better podcast. Well, thanks for having me. And thank you all for listening in. We will catch you next time. Credit sites disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither credit sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is credit sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by credit sites or its affiliates. Thank you.